In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Last week, we started exploring how marriage is a mystery. We're in this series this fall looking at relationships. And we were considering how marriage, this mystery of marriage, is really not about marriage itself, but it's about a much bigger story. It's about Christ's love for and his relationship with the church. This is what St. Paul says in Ephesians that marriage is really about. This, this marriage between husband and wife is about that, Christ's marriage, Christ's relationship with the church. Marriage is meant to tell a story. It's meant to be a drama. Our marriages, they draw their design, their purpose, and their power from the ultimate marriage of Christ and his church. We need to know the ultimate purpose of marriage. It's a symbol of the union between Christ and his church. And everything else flows from this reality. This is the most fundamental thing that Christians are to understand about marriage. This is what it is ultimately about. If marriage is a drama, it's a performance of sorts. And there's a script that God has given us in Holy Scripture. There are parts, there are roles that have been assigned. And if we're going to live out the drama of marriage faithfully and well... Marriage has a power to display the gospel to the world as husband and wife act out this drama of Christ and the church. Ephesians 5 points to both this big picture of the drama, that's what we looked at last week of Christ and the church, and to the roles that husband and wife were to play in that performance. Now, we live in a cultural moment when any conversation about differences between the sexes is highly contested. This is something that's absolutely not taken for granted in our culture. We can think of maybe two sides of the ditches that one could follow off on in any discussion that starts to talk about how male and female might differ, particularly in the institution of marriage. So progressive approaches. Progressive approaches tend to erase distinctions between male and female, while at the same time making gender itself a completely subjective idea that cannot be pinned down. So roles that might more or less be associated with male or female historically, these are only to be understood as socially constructed. So if this is the case then, we can't really say that when we come to something like marriage that husband and wife are really any different. These have to be interchangeable roles. We can't speak to the husband having one role and her wife having another role. But even more, a progressive approach to the sexist now asserts that biology and gender are completely different things. So for example, you may be biologically male, but your gender identity is whatever you feel it is, regardless of what your biology reveals. So for example, now on Facebook, there are 71 and counting, three years ago it was 51, there are 71 gender identities that you can choose from. Now I don't point this out to wag a finger or to decry our cultural situation. We just need to understand the particular moment that we're living in. We can't take things for granted that maybe perhaps we did take for granted. And we need to be wise. We need to try to understand how we got to this point. Why is it that something like gender now is completely subjective and completely changeable based on one's feelings? So to even talk about how male and female might be different in our context runs into a lot of problems. The claims of subjective identity not just when it comes to how we think about gender, by the way, and the way we think about a whole host of other things, the claims of subjective identity trump objective reality. This is just the world that we live in, and we need to understand that. But men and women, indeed, are different. 
And the difference is not just anatomical, it goes all the way down. This, by the way, is one area where science keeps lining up with the traditional teaching of Scripture. Your DNA tells you if you're male or female. Chromosomes, hormones, anatomy, secondary sex characteristics, all of these actually do point to a basic sexual binary. Male and female is simply a given in creation. This is the basic, and up until very recently, the most obvious thing about what it means to be human. And this is rooted on the first page of Scripture. God created humanity in his image, good, very good, and the basic way of being human is either male or female. Now, we should be very sensitive to those who feel alienated from their own bodies and struggle with their gender identity, and we need to seek the best care and counseling and love them absolutely. But we should be able to say confidently as Christians, God created humanity equally in his image, male and female, he created them. This is basic, but it's highly, highly contested. So again, we need to understand as Christians our own cultural moment and not get super worked up, but we need to understand, okay, where is it that our culture is on this question? And then with as much passion and energy, we need to seek to understand what scripture teaches and what the tradition of Christianity has taught for over 2,000 years, and the Judeo-Christian tradition has taught for much longer than that as well, because that's the tradition in which we stand, and we shouldn't just as easily dismiss it for a trend that is maybe a couple of decades old. We need to be able to say confidently as Christians, God cre- created humanity male and female in his image, and to be able to speak a male and female is important when it comes to marriage. One philosopher puts it this way, marriage is based on the anthropological truth that men and women are different and complementary. The biological fact that reproduction depends on a man and a woman and the social reality that each child needs a mother and a father. So you see in this traditional understanding of marriage, there's an anthropological truth, a biological fact, and a social reality where Sex does matter. Male and female does matter in each one of these categories. And it's not just for the whims of the couple. It's actually for the social good. Husband and father, these are different. Wife and mother, these are different. These are inherently different callings. They're not interchangeable, and they're inherently different callings based on sex. If there's a progressive side of the ditch, though, to fall off on that tries to erase all distinctions, and then let the category of gender identity be what's prominent. There's also a conservative side of the ditch that we need to be wary of as well. Because there are some things that are clearly social constructs that are related to gender. This also should be obvious. So one kind of silly example is the color pink. Now, we all immediately associate pink with little girls, right? But up until the early 20th century, pink was considered a masculine color. So Jay Gadsby in The Great Gadsby, he wears a pink suit. And this was not because he was getting in touch with his feminine side, right? For Christians, approaches that try to rigidly define gender roles in ways that Scripture doesn't can quickly become legalistic and just as problematic, of a, as, as problematic as erasing any kind of distinctions. So for example, some have insisted that women shouldn't work outside of the home. But Scripture doesn't actually teach this. The home in the Bible times was the center of the economy. 
men and women both were pretty much working in the home up until the Industrial Revolution when work was taken outside of the home. So when it says, for an example, for, for women to be busy at home and to manage their households, this is that they're managing a center of economic production. They're to be busy in this economy. So we can't say this is, this is a, a cultural construct that's sort of come up in certain circles that want to say, well, you know, women should never work outside of the home. Again, we shouldn't try to too rigidly define gender roles, acknowledging that there is a difference at the same time. There's nothing, for example, that says the husband has to cut the grass or the wife has to cook the meals. We run into trouble if we too rigidly try to define these things down. Male and female, husband and wife, are fully equal, created in the image of God. And yet, they are different. They are male and female, husband and wife. But to fully uphold the equality of man and woman, it doesn't mean that you have to erase distinctions. In fact, it's a way to honor the uniqueness of manhood and womanhood. In marriage, marriage is meant to be a drama in which the sexes, male and female, are united in their glorious difference. So when it comes to scripture, we don't have a bunch of specific instructions about how household chores are to be delegated between husband and wife. But we do have what we might call role prompts in this drama for husband and wife in Christian marriage. The husband and wife are to take these prompts from the Bible and improvise accordingly in their specific context. In the marriage drama, the husband is the leading man and the wife is the leading lady. The husband takes his cue, as we see in Ephesians chapter 5, particularly from Christ in the way that he loves and sacrifices for his bride. And the wife takes her cue in particular from the church in the way that she responds to and respects her husband. And in doing so, they're acting out this drama before the world, this drama of the gospel. So I want to dig into these role prompts just a bit. And if you disagree or have any questions, my email address is keith at holycrossva.org. And Keith loves to answer emails on Monday morning, first thing. So the leading lady of the drama is the wife. She represents the church. The word we used last week was typology. The typology of marriage is so important. And we need to take it seriously. So, starting in verse 21, I'm going to give something of a literal translation here. Ephesians 5, 21. Submitting to one another in respect for Christ, wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. And then Paul goes on to talk about what submission looks like in other contexts in, in Ephesians 5 and then in Ephesians 6. So what does it mean to submit? Well, quite literally, the English word is submission. It means to come under the mission of of something. The church is to joyfully and voluntarily come under the mission of Jesus, submitting to him and obeying him. And wives living out this marriage drama representing the church are to come under the mission of their husbands as their husbands follow Christ, as their husbands are under the submission of Christ, as husband and wife together are under submission to Christ. So why? Paul tells us in verse 23, because, because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. The church is to respond to the love, leadership, and initiative of Jesus. So the wife is to respond to the love, leadership, and initiative of the husband. And we're going to come to the husbands in a bit, but I want to unpack submission a bit more, what it is and what it isn't. 
Submission in society is inevitable. I think that's the first thing that we can say about submission. It is absolutely inevitable. We all live in submission. Whether you like it or not, you live in submission. We have bosses. I have a bishop. Military is based on submission, is based on order. Schools, schools would not work without submission and order. Parents, uh, children are to submit to parents, the parents' authority and leadership. In the Bible, the church, uh, we see the church is to submit to the leaders who have been set out and to pastors to bring themselves under the mission of those who have been placed in authority. In any organization, someone has to assume leadership. Leadership, headship, is inescapable. You can't pretend it doesn't exist. You don't have, for example, two CEOs who have a 100% equal delegation of roles. I don't think there's a Fortune 500 company where this plays out. You can't have two COs, two commanding officers in the military. That would be a disaster. You don't have two head coaches. You don't have two presidents. See, this is just the way that the world works. And part of that word in submission, it comes from the Greek word of order. This is the order that God has written into the universe. Now, the wife's role in this marriage drama is to voluntarily bring herself into alignment and into submission to her husband's headship. There's nothing in the Bible that suggests husbands force or make their wives submit. That's completely off, as we're going to see in a second. It would be contradictory to so much of Scripture. It's up to the wife to enter into this role, into this part of the gospel drama. There's important point out though what this doesn't mean. Submission doesn't mean no voice. The wife will inevitably be in a healthy Christian marriage the chief advisor and counselor to the husband. In fact, when a husband is being a godly head, decision making will in effect be collaborative and mutual constantly in practice. The husband will value and find his wife's counsel indispensable and if he is wise, he will act on it consistently. <laughs> Submission doesn't mean no voice. It also isn't absolute. Wives submit to your own husbands, not to just every man in general. No, it does say in everything. This is referring to the holistic nature of marriage. We must understand the principle of obeying God before man, obeying Jesus before man, applies even in marriage. So if a husband goes completely AWOL, completely abdicates his role in being a godly leader, then there's a major, major problem there. Submission doesn't mean inferior. While the wife in marriage is primarily called to play the church role, submission is also a Jesus role. In 1 Corinthians 11, even though he is fully equal, consubstantial, co-eternal with the Father in what's called the economy of redemption, he voluntarily brings himself under the mission of the Father. And so even in marriage, the wife will play the Jesus role. Submission doesn't mean oppression, but what it does mean is respecting God's order. It's interesting, Ephesians 5.21, where it says submitting to one another uh, literally in respect for Christ, that same word comes up again in Ephesians 5.33 when Paul concludes his sections, let wives see to it that they respect their husbands. This respect means respecting the husband's role as head, as leader in the family. Now husbands, obviously, if you want respect from your wife, you need to work on being respectable. And Paul calls husbands to love their wives in a very particular way. Now, almost twice as many words are directed to the husband. The husband is the head of the wife, as 
Christ is the head of the church. Again, back to this basic typology. He is to love his wife as Christ loves the church. So when you start to think about how does Christ love the church, how does Christ love his people, what does that look like? It looks like a towel. It looks like a basin of water. It looks like getting down on your knees and washing the feet of your wife. This is what Jesus does with his disciples in John chapter 13. This is how he leads. This is how he shows his authority in an almost subversive, counterintuitive way. He leads by sacrificial service. The Son of Man came to serve and not to be served, but to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark 8, 45. So the husband is to be zealous, not to see his wife as his personal attendant, but to serve his wife, to tend to his wife, to glorify her. The husband is meant to be a servant leader in the home with Christ as his primary model. So what does this look like? Again, I think we can only speak generally here because we only have role prompts, and the specifics are to be worked out in prayer and in collaboration in the context of each marriage and each family. But I think that there are some general things that we can say just straight from the scripture here. The husband, in his sacrificial servant leadership way, is to be a spiritual, the spiritual leader in the home. Christ seeks the growth of his bride. He gave himself up for his bride, verse 26, that she might be made holy and washed with the water of the word. So this applied to husbands. Seek the spiritual growth of the bride. Encourage her in her gifts and calling. Empower her in her gifts and calling. Be the spiritual leader in your home, husbands. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you encourage your wife and your home with the word of God. You be the one to initiate prayer, lead family devotions, get your family to church. A godly husband will say like Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The husband is to love his own wife as himself, to, to love his wife as Christ loved the church, to love his wife as himself. This is just the golden rule applied to marriage. Verse 28 to 29, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. So the husband is to be a spiritual leader, yes, but also a nourishing leader. The word here speaks to provision. It implies security. The husband will take final responsibility in ensuring that the family is provided for, taking concern for his wife and his family's well-being. Again, this doesn't mean the wife can't work. She might very well earn more money than he does. But the husband is to love his wife in a way that brings security and practical provision to the family. Someone has to take responsibility. Someone has to take final responsibility for these big questions. But also the husband is to be a cherishing leader. So a spiritual leader, a nourishing leader, a cherishing leader. Christ cherishes the church, his bride. He delights in us. He sings over us. He takes joy in us even when we are far less than perfect, right? Husbands are to cherish their wives. The word here literally means keeping warm. It's what happens when you cuddle up. You get warm, right? The husband is to be tenderhearted and loving towards his bride. He's to adore her above all others. Proverbs 31, the famous Proverbs 31 wife, um, also talks about children and husband. Her children will rise up and call her blessed. The children are praising her in this proverb, but also her husband is praising her. 
not just at home and in private, but her husband is praising her in the gate, out in public, never speaking ill of her, praising his wife. The husband speaks well of his wife to his children in, in home and in public. He is constantly cherishing her. Now, does anything in this description of husband sound like a tyrant to you? Does this sound like an oppressive, awful institution? Paul's teaching on marriage challenges both the male chauvinist and the radical feminist. C.S. Lewis said this about headship of the husband. He said, the headship of the husband then is most fully embodied not in the husband we should all wish to be, but in him whose marriage is most like a crucifixion. The husband is called as leader to wear a crown, but it's a crown of thorns. He is to love his wife as Christ loves the church. That's his unique role. I think the best image that I can think of of these roles being played out in the drama of marriage is a dance. In a dance, you have to have a dance partner leading and another following. And great dancers, of which I'm absolutely not, they move together gracefully as a unit. If you watch two amazing dancers, it's a beautiful thing to behold. You might not even be able to tell who's leading. They're moving as such a unit. But someone is. Someone is leading. And the better the dancer, maybe the less obvious it is that who is making that initiating move. The Episcopal priest from the last century, Robert Farrar Capon, he wrote this. The common notion of equality is based on the image of a march. In a parade, really unequal beings are dressed alike, given guns of identical length, trained to hold them at the same angle, in order to keep step with a fixed beat. But it is not the parade that is true to life. It is the dance. There you have real equals assigned unequal roles, in order that each may achieve his individual perfection in the whole. Nothing is less personal than a parade, nothing more so than a dance. And the drama of marriage is meant to be a gospel dance. We have a script for the drama of marriage. But again, it's not a script that has all of the words in it, everything spelled out perfectly. It does have prompts, prompts for husband and prompts for wives, and we should take those prompts seriously. But part of the challenge, part of the adventure, part of the struggle of marriage is figuring out in your particular marriage, for those of you who are married, how this plays out. We should take these prompts seriously and learn. Be gracious with one another. Forgive one another. But learn how to improvise accordingly in our marriages. We should be faithful to the roles of husband and wife, reminding ourselves always of the larger point, the larger story our marriage is supposed to tell Christ's love for the church. Christian marriage is a drama that has the power to preach the gospel. So let's pray and ask God for help in our marriages.